This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, welcome one and all to The Late Show. I'm your host, Stephen Colbert. You know, folks, I... If you, wa- if you watch this show, and I hope you do, you know that I give Republicans in the Congress a hard time, but every, every so often, I know, but every so often you gotta just step back and appreciate how much harder of a time they give themselves. <laughs> because recently, their stupid levels have reached critical dumb. And earlier, earlier this week, under orders from Donald Trump, they rejected their own border deal that they demanded four months ago in exchange for aid to Ukraine. And instead, yesterday, they decided to impeach Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas, who most Americans could not pick out of a lineup, including you, because this is not Alejandro Mayorkas. <laughs> but in fact, it's just an image one of my writers found by Googling the words, bald man in suit. <laughs> The real, the actual target of this impeachment was actual Homeland Security Secretary (laughs) and bald man in suit, Alejandro Mayorkas. The vote uh, was called by House Speaker and man in the commercial who has the confidence to shake hands again after taking Cialis. (laughs) Mike Johnson, the the, the GOP, uh, you'll remember, has just a razor-thin majority in the House. So clearly, Speaker Johnson would bring this to the floor for a vote only if he knew with absolute certainty they had the votes to and they lost. (laughs) Mike Johnson, are you definitely against porn? Because you sure like getting spanked while everyone watches. (laughs) 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 Holding a vote without knowing the vote count It's a rookie mistake that Nancy Pelosi would never have made. And afterwards, this is how Pelosi described Johnson's leadership. Poo-poo. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, madam. So succinct. Here's here's what happened. Uh, Republicans thought they could lose three of their votes and still win the impeachment vote, but they did not count on the heroic return of Texas Democratic congressman and businessman werewolf Al Green. (laughs) The GOP was counting on Green not showing up because he was in the hospital recovering from abdominal surgery, but he learned about the impeachment vote while watching television, so he grabbed an Uber to the Capitol. (laughs) That takes a lot of guts, some of which might still be in the back of that Uber. (laughs) Then he arrived on the floor of Congress still in a hospital gown (laughs) with no shoes. It turns out he was wearing one boot but he left it in Mike Johnson's ass. Anyway. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Anyway, 
Where were we? Okay, G uh, Green made it in time to cast his vote, and the impeachment failed. Now, after the loss, the Republicans put a motion on the floor to reconsider the vote. The question is on the motion to reconsider. Those in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed say no. No. The ayes have it. I'm sorry, what? The eyes may have it, but his ears have lost it. <laughs> now, uh, who's, who's the, what's her name? Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Knew, uh... <laughs> okay, but how do you feel? Marjorie Taylor Greene knew exactly who to blame for the Republicans' failure, the Democrats. They hid one of their members uh, waiting to the last minute, uh, watching to see our votes, um, trying to throw us off on the numbers that we had versus the numbers they had. Green had a personal reason for being so angry. See, Speaker Johnson was so confident of victory that he'd already named 11 impeachment managers ahead of a possible Senate trial. Oh, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Speaker Johnson can count his chickens before they hatch. <laughs> and one of those... Sure. Chickens. Chickens. One of those managers was set to be Marjorie Taylor Greene. Really? She feels less impeachment manager and more, I'd like to speak to your manager. <laughs> Greene's been at the forefront uh, of this impeachment push the entire way. In fact, she authored the resolution, which explains why Mayorkas' articles of impeachment were written in crayon. <laughs> Now, the big... <laughs> the big problem with her resolution is that impeachment is not designed to be used against people you just disagree with on policy. It's about high crimes and misdemeanors, but the GOP never produced any evidence that Mayorkas had committed crimes, let alone crimes that meet the threshold for impeachable offenses. And sometimes you really need a crime. That's why Dostoevsky didn't sell many copies of his first novel, Oops, All Punishment. <laughs> I think that's... I think that might be the porno that Mike Johnson's in. Oh, wow. After that humiliating defeat, Speaker Johnson badly needed a win, so even though it was late before the House adjourned, he called for a vote on the GOP's standalone package for aid to Israel, and that failed, too. But it's not whether you win or lose, it's how hard you laugh at Mike Johnson. <laughs> of course, the Super Bowl isn't the only clash of titans happening in Nevada this week, because yesterday, Nevada held their presidential primaries. On, on the Democratic side, Joe Biden had a commanding win with 89% of the vote. And it is always... It is always reassuring when his vote total is higher than his age. GOP also had a primary, uh, but due to some party shenanigans, Donald Trump was not on the ballot. Instead, he's part of tomorrow's Republican caucus. So Nikki Haley was running unopposed in the primary. It was a big chance for her to spark some Nick mania. And she came through with 30% of the vote, which is not great, but even less great. She lost to none of these candidates, which got twice as many votes. Well, Nikki Haley's campaign message is, nobody's better than me, and Nevada agreed. <laughs> she, also, she also lost uh, to Nevada candidates, not feeling it today, and gonna be a no from me, dog. 
it, it's, it's not all massive failures out there for the GOP. There are also some smaller failures. Like Republican National Committee Chair and star of the new CW show, Tiny Judge, <laughs> Ronna McDaniel. Now, McDaniel has led the Republican National Committee since 2017, and she's gone to extreme lengths to prove her MAGA loyalty. She's the niece of Trump critic Senator Mitt Romney and used to go by the name Ronna Romney McDaniel. But before she took over as chair, Trump asked her to stop using Romney in her name, so she immediately dropped Romney. And this is a family that puts a lot of thought into names. Just ask Mitt, his sons Tag, Zap, Blorp, Shank, and Gluff. <laughs> but one of those might be a sound effect. Uh-huh. But even renaming herself to please Papa Trump did not stop him from saying this on Monday. Is it time for Ronna McDaniel to step aside? Well, I think she knows that. I think she understands that. Well, I think she understands. I mean, I, I appreciate the Romney thing, but I was shocked to find out that the rest of her name is Ronna McDaniel, and not as I previously believed, Ronna McDonald. I thought... <laughs> I thought she was Ronald's beautiful clown wife, at the very least, a shaved fry guy. Now, uh, just one day later, sources say McDaniel plans to step down. She's leaving to spend more time with whoever Donald Trump will allow to be her family. (laughs) We got a great show for you tonight. Coming up, Christopher Nolan. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Please have a seat, everybody. Thank you very much. Folks, we're in the midst of Hollywood award season, and the most nominated film of the year is Oppenheimer. It's received... 13 Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, as well as Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay for Christopher Nolan. Nolan's gripping epic presents the true story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, and his fall from grace following World War II. It features this absolutely incredible cast, including Academy Award-nominated performances from Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, and Robert Downey Jr., as well as Matt Damon, Florence Pugh, Kenneth Branagh, and so many other huge stars, but not me, even though it kind of looks like I'm in the film (laughs) right now. I've been a longtime admirer of Mr. Nolan's work, and I was honored to speak with him about his extraordinary film and his career. Christopher Nolan joined me at one of the key locations for Oppenheimer, the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, where we sat down for an in-depth interview in Albert Einstein's office. Christopher, thank you so much for sitting down with me thank you. to talk today. Um, I know you don't do a lot of these. I'm really, I'm really grateful that you're here. I'm a lot happier behind the camera. That's the simplest way to put it. But okay. I'm thrilled that anyone would want to talk to me about my work. That's a great thing. Some musicians don't want to talk about their music because they say, no, I said everything in the music. Is that how you feel as a director? I think that's often how I feel as a director. It depends on the nature of the questions. I mean, the fun thing with Oppenheimer is it's not my story. It's a great piece of history. It's an incredible American story. So talking about this film has been easier because you could talk about the issues around it. You could talk about the history. What initially sparked your interest in this particular story? I, I, I know you reference Oppenheimer 
and the terrible possibility that a single nuclear ignition could uh, destroy the entire world in the movie Tenet. Yeah. Is that moment related to you making this film? I mean, definitely. I, every time I make a film, I try to put sort of, I guess I try to leave each film with interesting questions that maybe in some unrelated form or possibly related form, I sort of pick up with the next film. Those kind of connections between my films are It's like that moment could be a window into yeah. the next film, the same way that the reference, there are references in uh, Arcadia that Tom Stoppard looks through to create um, The Invention of Love. I think that's a very uh, fancy analogy to my work. I wouldn't want to claim it. I'm but... trying to be as fancy as I can. <laughs> You're Chris I'm Nolan. Doing a great job. You're Chris uh, Nolan, okay. I, no, I mean, for me, I, not as consciously as that. It's something I look back at and I go, oh, how did I come to this? Because I'll be asked, you know, how, how did you come to make a film about Oppenheim? And then I start looking back at, yeah, what is the chain? What's the thread? You know, where do I go from my... What is the chain reaction? Challenges? When did you achieve critical mass with when your interest in Oppenheimer? Mass? Critical mass, definitely from uh, reading the book American Prometheus, mm -hmm. which Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin spent 25 years working on. Um, I was interested in Oppenheimer. I had the reference in Tenet because that moment leading up to the Trinity Test, the idea that they sat in a room and had an actual discussion along the lines of, well, when we push this button, it's very small possibility. It's possible. It might end everything. Mm -hmm. And they went ahead and pushed the button. I thought, well, what an incredibly dramatic situation. We used it uh, as analogy in Tenet, as a way into exploring a science fiction conceit. Mm -hmm. um, but coming out of that experience, um, Rob Pattinson, who's in Tenet, he gave me a book of uh, Oppenheimer speeches from the 1950s where he's wrestling with you know, how do we deal with this reality, the change that we've wrought on the world? And so that sort of took me a step further. Um, and then uh, our fellow producer, Chuck Roven, uh, suggested I read American Prometheus. My wife and I watched the film together, first time I, first time I watched mm. it. And I'm curious what your reaction is to the fact that I was so engrossed in the film and I was watching with such rapt attention that when my wife, Evie, asked me afterwards, what I thought about the choice to shoot some of it in color and some of it in black and white, I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> what, like, how do you feel that I didn't notice? I feel it's the perfect response because there's a danger, anytime you stylize the image as a filmmaker, there's a danger that you remind the audience they're watching a film. Mm -hmm. For me, shooting on celluloid film, um, mixing color in black and white, which is something I'd done as far back as my film Memento, and I wanted to revisit that technique because I think it's a great way of making the audience feel differently about a scene, but not necessarily think about it too much. So it's a form of stylization that I think people are comfortable with. So it's, it's great to hear that because I did want it to, I wanted it to roll by as more of a feeling than, than an idea, if you like. Okay, there's mystique that's been built around you over many years and your process. Can we fact check a few things right here? Oh gosh. This is kind of lightning round. You will either fly to an actor or have them come to you, or you will stay on site as they read the script the first time. Yes. Yes. And why do you do this? To keep the script private, to mm -hmm. not email scripts around. So it's mostly mm -hmm. for that. And also to really try and get that immediate reaction. Right. And look in the eyes of the person who's read it and see, do they see it the way I see it? Mm -hmm. Can we find common ground creatively here? You know how hard it must be to read a script and go, I don't like it, Chris. Like that must, oh, yeah. That's a little pressure. 
It's a little pressure, but they, people can rely on my ability to listen to them say, I love it, it's great, I want to do it, and realize that no, they don't, and that's uh, fine. Okay, you print your scripts in red and black ink so they can't be photocopied. Uh, yes, and to remind people not to, to photocopy them or share them. Okay, so more pressure. You don't have a cell phone or an email address. Uh, I don't have an email address. I never use email, and I don't have a smartphone. I will carry a pay-as-you-go, like, dumb phone thing when I need to. Yeah. So you have a burner phone. I, yes, uh -huh. I suppose you could put it that way. Mm -hmm. And you, do you work with the cartels? Why I, do you? I was inspired by The Wire, definitely. Okay, but, uh, great. And uh, then when you're done, you break it up and you put it in two different trash cans? Before uh, Jason Bourne style, yes. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Um, you don't allow cell phones or Uggs on set. Ah, uh, the Uggs controversy, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I don't allow uh, cell phones on set. I, I try to minimize distractions on set. Okay, that, and Uggs are distracting? My, well... They can be for the other actors, yes, because even though we're engaged in this absurd process where this wall is real, but there's lights and there's a guy with a microphone or whatever, you're asking the actor to focus in on the reality. And so oh, I see. everything you can do, like right. wearing the correct shoes, you know, yeah. whatever, and, and not, you know, changing your trousers. So this is just for the cast, it's not for like crew or anything like that? It's, it's for the cast, it's for me. Okay. You know, I'm in there with them trying to concentrate, trying to really see the reality of it. So anything we can do to keep that reality, okay. kind of keep that, that bubble intact. So the crew could have warm feet? The crew could have warm feet, Okay, good, yes. just making sure. The British accent, that's made up, right? It's completely made up, yes. Okay, good, it's very convincing. When we come back, I ask Christopher Nolan about Killian Murphy's audition to play Batman. Stick around. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Now continue with my interview with Christopher Nolan, already in progress. You did write part of the film in the first person. Yeah. You say, like in the Oppenheimer scenes, it is I walked into the room or I walked into the room. I am yeah. standing here. So why write that in the first person? Well, first and foremost, to scare the hell out of Killian Murphy when he read the script, to present him with that challenge and say, okay, we're in your head. Had you ever done it before? No. And I, I don't know if anyone's done it before. It's not really the way scripts are written. But as I started to write the script, I felt insufficiently connected, you know, insufficiently inside his head. And I knew that, for me, the key to telling this story was total subjectivity. It was just really feeling like you're, you're inside this guy. How did Killian feel when he read that? Did he say anything when he saw this? He not not right away, no. He, I mean, he, you know, I, I'd already sort of called him up and said to him, come on, you're going to come and do this with me, aren't you? And he'd said, sure, absolutely, I'm in. Then read the script. That's a scary thing for an actor. Um, he, I think his head was, was fully just spinning from the experience of reading the script. But we definitely talked early on about the responsibility he was going to have as a conduit for the audience, as, as somebody to just carry the audience with him. 
Um, you've got to feel his feelings, but you've also got to think his thoughts, which for somebody like J. Robert Oppenheimer, who is a genius with an intellectual capacity far beyond any of us, not to speak for you, certainly for me, <laughs> he's one of the great thinkers uh, of all time, you know, up there with people like Einstein and all the rest. So um, how do you open up his process of inspiration, his thought process to an audience and make it comprehensible and understandable? And a lot of that is just Killian's ability, his extraordinary empathetic ability to sort of carry the audience with him and bring them into his way of looking at the world. And that's what great movie stars do. I mean, they're great actors, but they also have that, that compelling charisma to just sort of take the audience with them. You've worked with Killian how many movies now? Six movies, 20 years. And, yeah. and he tried out for Batman. There are pictures of him online of him in the Batsuit. Yeah. He looks pretty good in the Batsuit. Why no Killian Batman? Why no Irish Batman? Because there was a Christian, a Christian Bale Batman, and uh, we screen tested, I think, five different actors. And yeah. Killian was the last to come in. I'd seen a, a photograph of him in the newspaper uh, promoting uh, Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later. And I was just very struck by the look of him. And I thought, well, let's just get him in, put him in as a number five, see what we get kind of thing. Met with him. We formed an immediate creative connection. I think he's just one of the most extraordinary artists I've ever met. What did you see in him for Oppenheimer? other than the unbelievable baby blues. Well, that's it's like a, looking at a Alaskan Malamute or something. It's a big, big part of it. I mean, I, I try not to think of actors when I'm writing because I don't want to limit what the character could be. And if you're thinking of an actor, you're thinking of something they've already done. Mm. So try, particularly dealing with real characters as well, real people, I try to just be pure to that. Then when I'm finished, you know, American Prometheus sitting on my desk, this picture of, Oppenheimer with his incredible eyes and that incredible stare. And I just was like, yeah, I know who can do that. I know, I know the guy who has those eyes, who has that ability to, to draw the audience in um, with that intensity. What do you do as a director when you've got six movie stars in your movie? At least yeah. six movie stars, multiple Oscar winners out there. Yeah. Um, Emma and myself, Emma, my producer and wife, uh, we, for years, we've tried to sort of set the terms of how we're going to make the film with people before they come and just sort of say, you know, it's not going to be, you know, a pampered movie star experience because we found that that hinders the work. What we want is a team effort. What we want is everybody just working together and, and keeping it all about the work. And, um, you know, we found that, that even the biggest movie stars in the world, like Robert Downey Jr. or whatever, kind of refreshed by that and, and thrilled to sort of turn up and just focus on the craft, just focus on acting. It's great to see Robert Downey Jr. Um, out of Iron Man mode. Mm. Not to take anything away from that performance. It was a beautiful performance. But in this, when he's playing Louis Strauss, um, when you won Best Director at the Golden Globes last month, you mentioned that the last time you were on stage to uh, accept um, a posthumous award for Heath Ledger's work in The Dark Knight, and you spoke of catching Robert Downey Jr.'s eye. Mm. in that moment, and him looking at you and supporting you in that moment. Did you come back to that moment when you thought of him for this part? I did, because I think that you're looking, with anybody you work with, with actors you, can, you work with, you're, you're looking for some kind of connection emotionally, empathetically. You're, you're looking for some, I, I would term it, talking about Robert Downey Jr.'s generosity. He has this incredible generosity of spirit and it 
means that when he's in a scene with other people, he's making sure that they're all doing their best, that they're all able to bring their, their best to the table. And he's helping them clarify all those emotional connections and all the rest. So I've always wanted to work with him. I've always seen that in his work, you know, and he has such charisma as Tony Stark. I mean, I think him playing Iron Man is one of the most consequential casting decisions that's ever been made in the history of the movie business. And I, I wanted to give him the opportunity to lose himself in a part, lose himself in, in another human being the way that great actors love to. When we return, I ask Christopher Nolan if he knows how to build an atomic bomb. Hi, I'm Jordana Abraham. And I'm Dr. Naomi Bernstein. And we want to tell you about Calm the F*** Down, a guided meditation series from the Oversharing Podcast. This is something we've been planning for a long time. It's our most requested segment from the podcast. And these meditations are going to be between five and 10 minutes. They're going to be super quick because we don't have a lot of time. You're going to be so surprised how five to 10 minutes of really thoughtful meditations can transform your whole life. In addition to the first four meditations available at launch, we'll be doing two new meditations every single month. Plus, for the fans of Oversharing Podcast out there, you'll also get ad-free versions of every episode of the Oversharing Podcast. So if somebody wants to become a subscriber, how do they join? It's so easy. You just go to subscribe.betches.com and sign up now for only $4.99 a month. Or you can lock in our discounted rate if you sign up for the whole year. That's subscribe.betches.com. Or if you're in the Apple Podcasts app, you can just hit the subscribe button now and sign up in the app. It's as easy as that. And now more of my rare look inside the mind of Christopher Nolan. Kenneth Branagh plays Niels Bohr, who yeah. says to Oppenheimer, How's your mathematics? Not good enough for the physicist he wants to be. Algebra's like sheet music. The important thing isn't can you read music, it's can you hear it. Can you hear the music, Robert? Yes, I can. What's the parallel in what you do? Can you hear the music before you actually go execute the music? It's very much the thing of the difference between theory and practice. The other line in the film that repeats a lot is, you know, theory will take you only so far. And, and I right. think the thing about filmmaking, my, my craft, there's a lot of technical information that goes into it. There are a lot of technicalities. There are a lot of different ways you can approach it. But ultimately, if you let that get in the way of instinct, I don't think you can make a good film. I think instinct and the emotional connection with the material you have to find a way that that's leading things. I found the imagery of the raindrops to be very beautiful and, and poignant and resonant to the rest of the story. And, and I, a friend of mine, whose father's a physicist, shared this email of his reaction. He commented that the raindrops were kind of an in-joke in, among physicists, and that ripples in the puddles represent waves propagating and interacting and reflecting that represent much of the basics of modern physics and quantum mechanics, the idea being that the basic constituents of matter and energy, including light, atomic particles, etc., can be considered as probability waves, like the waves in a pond, as well as simultaneously particles. Is that and, what you're going for? And people say there are no jokes in my films. <laughs> <laughs> he got the joke. As far as, uh, yeah. Because it's all throughout. The opening shot is him looking at raindrops no, definitely. in the puddle, and the closing yeah. shot is him, well, it's him after looking at the raindrops yeah. in the puddles, and... 
and it is implications. It, it to me the the raindrops are wonderful version of, yes, everything he's talking about in terms of it, it's the, the wave-like behavior of particles mm-hmm. that, you know, becomes so complicated for physicists to deal with. Um, but it's also their ultimate representation, the shock waves of, of nuclear explosions. And so... And the shock wave of the existence of a nuclear bomb, whether or not it's used, what that yes, does to all pres- our society. Precisely. And so it's, for me, it's one of the, as I think about it, based on their reaction, it, it's one of the few areas where you can see something that's so important to the quantum world, but also exists in, in the largest scale imaginable. Mm-hmm. There aren't that many things like that that are, that are real. You tend to avoid CGI mm-hmm. uh, for, for practical effects or, or shooting yeah. an actual physical object doing a thing or a person doing a thing. You really feel it in these films, and one of the most remarkable moments, of course, is the Trinity test itself. And it is so convincing a reproduction of the Trinity test, mm. that my question has got to be, Chris Nolan, do you now know how to make an atomic bomb, and why aren't you <laughs> under sanctions? Uh, fair enough. Uh, no, it's all, all uh, fakery, but it's analog fakery. So Andrew Jackson and Scott Fisher, a visual effects supervisor, my special effects supervisor, they came together very early. The challenge, I mean, Andrew was the first person after Emma that I showed the script to, because I said, you're gonna need a long time to figure out how are you gonna do these internal visualizations of the atom, but also the Trinity test itself, which had to be a showstopper in the film. The Trinity test had to be threatening. It had to be incredibly beautiful, but also primarily, you know, threatening. And analog imagery is just a lot better at doing that. How'd you do it? Appropriately. They did a lot of very large explosions, but with forced perspective. Mm so they would appear bigger than they were with varying frame rates. Um, and then a lot of very tiny things as well, of, of really microscopic, you know, things floating in particular solutions mm-hmm. and balloons and liquid and all, just all kinds of amazing tricks. I mean, a, a real library of it. So it, it took a very long time, um, but I was, I was thrilled with their work. It was such a pleasure to have all of that material in the edit suite because we also knew we weren't going to use any sound in that moment. And so it's all on the image. You know, you're asking the audience at the cinema to just sit there for quite a while in silence, looking at that imagery and, and being affected by that. There is something beautiful about an atomic explosion. Absolutely. Unbelievably beautiful. And that's part of the tension of that moment. Yeah. You know the horror of it, but you can't look away from it. Yeah. It's mesmerizing and, and hypnotic. And yeah, the footage, we studied a lot of footage of real A-bomb and H-bomb explosions, and it's, it's this terrible beauty. When we return, I'll ask Chris why the music in his movies always makes me so nervous. Late Show Pond Show listeners can get 20% off on all Late Show with Stephen Colbert merchandise on ParamountShop.com. That's 20% off at checkout on all Late Show shirts, mugs, accessories, and more with code TLS20 at ParamountShop.com. Okay, I understand you've structured some of your scripts based on the musical auditory illusion of the shepherd tone. Mm. And for, for the audience, I'd like to play it right now, <laughs> just so they get a sense of what we're talking about. Okay, shepherd tone. 
sounds like it's infinitely ascending yeah. and in infinitely loading energy, but it actually never actually goes anywhere because the top note drops down and it just continues this illusion of ascension and all you know for sure is that you're about to go insane. <laughs> so, and, and you hear it, it's in, it's in several. It's, uh, of course, the bat pod. Absolutely, quite so. Why, what's the shepherd tone do for you? The first time I encountered it was actually in a Beck song oh. uh, that I called my composer David Julian on The Prestige. I was trying to figure out the sound of anticipation, the sound of magic, you know, because that's a film about two magicians and a lot of it is about anticipation. And I so all well, the sound of an orchestra tuning up, that's anticipation. But I, but I said, David, I heard this song that just seems to keep going up and up and up. And... Um, I played it for him down the phone, and he went, oh, no, that's a shepherd tone. He knew exactly what it was, described the mechanics, how to make it work, and I said, great, write the music that way. And so we put it in the sound of the bat pod in The Dark Knight, for example, because we didn't ever want it to downshift. Are you musical? Do you play an instrument? I'm musical in the sense of I love music, and I love, I love being involved in the process of creating music for film. And I love the process of working with a composer like Ludwig Göransson in the case yeah. of... Oppenheimer. How do you approach your composer like Ludwig Göransson? How do you mm. how do you approach him the first time? Do you say like you know, remember this is about the atomic bomb and this possibility to destroy the world? I need some upbeat. You know, like what do you <laughs> what what do you say? Like how do you start? I gave Ludwig the suggestion that I thought the solo violin mm. could have a relationship with Oppenheimer's very neurotic energy, particularly at the beginning of, mm. of the story, because to me. The solo violin can be warm and romantic and amazing, and then just with the slightest change, it can be horrifying and, and hard to listen to and, and edgy. I had Emily Blunt on the other night, and mm. she said that you and your wife um, are learning to play the cello. Yeah, I have dabbled uh, with uh, learning to play the cello for how, many years, very how, how many years? How many? I'm just curious, how many years have you been learning to play the cello? For me, uh, pretty seven or eight. Okay. All right. The reason I ask is it's pre-tenant you were learning to play the cello. Yes. Okay. Because in the opening scene in the orchestra, when the orchestra is yes. being taken over by the terrorists, I, when I first <laughs> saw that, having nothing to do with this interview, long before I was ever going to interview, yeah. I said, why does Christopher Nolan hate <laughs> cellos so much? Because you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. There's a very distinct moment where the camera goes over to a cello and yeah. the terrorist puts his foot through this cello. Yes. Why do you hate cellos so much? Are you, are you just frustrated? I'm very frustrated. It's a very difficult instrument to try and learn. That's definitely my, uh, my frustrations with the cello and, and my inability to learn it. Is there a, what's your, like, pop music um, junk food? Well, I'm a huge Bowie fan, you know. That's, that's almost new, too nutritious, the one I'm talking about. Well, I don't want to lower the tone of the interview too much, but uh, guess I'm going to stick with Radiohead and David Bowie. I guess what I'm asking Christopher Nolan is, can you complete the sentence, who let the dogs out? I cannot. No. You cannot? No. Interesting. Who did let the dogs out? Who? <laughs> who? When we come back, I ask Christopher Nolan if even he understands tenet.
Rise and shine, football fans. Start your day the right way with Morning Footy, a podcast that covers every aspect of the global game, headlines, match previews, analysis, interviews, culture, fashion, and plenty of banter. Join as we track the thrills and spills of Europe's biggest title races, the business end of the Champions League season, a summer packed with international competitions, MLS, NWSL, and much more. Subscribe to Morning Footy. The dramatic conclusion of my interview with Christopher Nolan. Spoiler, it's great. Do your films have meaning or being? In other words, do I have to get your film or can I experience your film? If you experience my film, you are getting it. And that, I feel very strongly about that. And I think that where people encounter frustrations with, with my narratives in the past, sometimes I think they're slightly missing the point it's not a puzzle to be unpacked. Uh, it's an experience to be had, preferably in a movie theater, but also at home. Um, hopefully in an unbroken period, in a sort of linear period, it's an experience to be had. That is the point of it. That's the feeling of it. Everything else, if people are interested to talk about it or debate it you know, more or, or if ideas resonate, um, that's a huge bonus. But for me, it's really all about that emotional experience of, of watching the film with an audience. Some people say they don't understand Tenet. Some people say they don't understand everything in Tenet, some of it. Do you understand everything in Tenet? You're not meant to understand everything in Tenet. It's not all comprehensible. It's this sort of, it's a bit like asking if I know what happens to the spinning top at the end of Inception. Uh, all the particular Do you know what happens to the spinning top at the end of Inception? I have to have my idea of it for it to be a valid productive ambiguity. But the point of it is it's an ambiguity. As Emma always likes to say, you know, the point is that the character doesn't care whether it falls or not. Staying on tenor for just a second here, I've got some theories that I'd like to run past you. Okay, I'm not going to get into the satire square, which obviously I've got all figured out. But <laughs> um, Max is really Neil, right? I don't allow myself to comment on fan theories anymore. It's okay. Uh, you can. You should. I Have fun. I, I, kick off your shoes. Yeah. Let your hair down. I'm not kicking off my shoes. Let my hair down. I made the mistake many years ago, and luckily it was before the prevalence of social media and all the rest. I went to the Venice Film Festival and showed Memento with the first ever audience who saw it. Mm -hmm. And in the press conference afterwards, they asked me about my interpretation of the ending. And I said, well, the important thing is it's ambiguous, it's unknowable, but yeah, what I think is blah, blah, blah. And my brother Jonah took me aside after that and said, you can never do that again. I said, but I, but I said, it's ambiguous. He said, no one listened to that. <laughs> they want an answer. So if you're looking for ambiguity, if you're looking for open possibilities, sure. you have to keep your mouth shut. Do you have guilty pleasures that might surprise people? Because I've been told that you're a fan of the Fast and Furious franchise. I have no guilt about being a fan of the Fast and the Furious franchise. Okay. Tremendous action franchise. I've never seen any of the movies. Really? And I, and I really want to see them because they're such popular movies that I think that I can't, I should really try to understand more the country that I talk about every day. And I don't think I can really do that honestly without watching the Fast and Furious franchise. <laughs> and I was wondering if you would want to sit down with me and watch all of them in a row. Wow. Um, we did the timing. We have to start at 6 a.m. and you'll be done by midnight. Yeah, no, absolutely, any time. You've never seen any of them? Is that a yes? Would you watch the Fast and Furious movies? Or yeah, I watch those movies all the time. I love them. Uh, I'm amazed you've never seen one of them. You do not need to watch more than one sitting. 
Okay. It's not, it's, it's, uh, really? it's only the last few where a very specific arc in pathology sort mm -hmm. of developed. Um, I would start with Tokyo Drift and uh, just watch that as its own thing. Because it's in a different, you up. It's a, it happens yeah. before the others, doesn't it? In the yeah. timeline? That's uh, what I know. Not before, but oh, yes, it is before. Uh, Did I just catch Chris Nolan not understanding something about time? About the, uh, exactly. Well, I was going to say something about the end of Tokyo Drift. It's a spoiler before you see it, so Please. you should see it. <laughs> Thank you, Christopher Nolan. I will be calling you about that Fast and Furious marathon. Good luck at the Oscars. That's it for The Late Show. Tune in tomorrow. My guests will be Andre 3000 and Justin Hartley. Now stick around for After Midnight with Taylor Tomlinson. Good night. Thank you for listening to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. Just one more thing. If you want to see more of me, come to The Late Show YouTube channel for more clips and exclusives. all benders and non-benders alike. Jump into the epic world of Avatar with your favorite podcast, Avatar Braving the Elements. Hosted by me, Janet Varney. And me, Dante Bosco. Each week we'll recap and discuss a new episode. So come join us and our amazing guests from creators to cast to superfans to chat about all things Avatarverse. It's Fire Nation time. Book of Fire. Let's go. Listen to Avatar Braving the Elements wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts.